Welcome to the Same Side Selling Podcast, dedicated to modern sales and marketing, innovation, and leadership. Here's your host, Ian Altman. Hey, it's Ian Altman. I'm joined this week by a repeat guest, Ramon Segal. We had Ramon on a few years ago after he had doubled his business, and since then, they've grown the business tenfold. And so it's kind of a case study example of some of the things that you can do to help grow your business. We're going to talk about the biggest misconceptions when it comes to business growth, the specific things that they've done to focus on the right types of clients to accelerate their trajectory, and then specific things that you can do and think about in your business to achieve remarkable growth. You're going to learn a ton from Ramon Segal. Ramon, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. It's uh, it's an honor to be back. You know what? It's great to have you back because people love hearing success stories and case studies about people who have implemented these concepts of same-side selling and what it's done for their business. And I'm always inspired when I hear how people take things that we wrote about or, or speak about and how they actually apply them. Before we dive in, what's, what's something surprising about you that people may not know? Um, so I've actually got quite a fun story about that. <laughs> so um, I don't think anyone or many people in the world know this. Uh, so before I was born... Um, Oh, this is a really old story. Okay, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Is, <laughs> it's nearly forty years. Uh, my, so my, I was, I was, oh, I am third of three brothers, and uh, prior to me being born, I was a bit of an accident, and my, my father ha- had a, he had several brothers, but he had one brother in India, and and him and his wife um, were struggling to have kids, and so my mum and dad decided that when I was born, they were going to ship me off to India. <laughs> and be brought up by effectively a surrogate family um and then a month before i was born um they they actually adopted a girl over in uh. india otherwise uh, i suspect my life might have turned out very differently <laughs> <laughs> hey you never know you never know it could have been better could have been worse i know i, I might have been run, running some kind of empire in delhi or in punjab now that would have been yeah. that would have been fun yeah, who knows who knows so you know, maybe you got ripped off, but I, I, it seems that things have worked out pretty well. So, yeah, so and, and I, I know, so. I know that you talk to a lot of businesses, and your agency works with a lot of different businesses. What's the greatest misconception that you think that people have when it comes to business growth? Um, well, what, one of the greatest misconceptions I always hear, particularly having a, a kind of a strong PR background, is you know all publicity is good publicity. I'm like, that is, that is not true, right? We've been in some crisis situations with clients where we're trying to, uh, you know, it's all damage limitation and, and that type of thing. So uh, that's certainly one misconception that I come across in, in PR. Um, I think from an entrepreneurial perspective, I think the, the one that I, I see a lot is kind of uh, I found myself is that kind of this misconception that the owner or the founder has to do everything themselves and I do see a lot of companies get stuck in a trap when they're so reliant on one individual uh, that it actually it almost tightens the grip on the organization and it restricts growth because whoever that person is doesn't necessarily see the value of bringing more resource or better resource people that are better than him or her sure to actually enable them to do what they're particularly good at. Well, and it's, and it's also a matter of scale. I know that in my prior business, 
I, I led our sales efforts for many years and grew the business pretty well, but I didn't grow it at dramatic levels where we got to valuations of over a billion dollars until I removed myself from the sales side of it, where it's just more, I became a resource people could bring in, but I was running the overall company. So to, to help, to help our listeners understand, give people kind of the synopsis of your story. Cause I know when we first met, um, it was in where Newcastle, is that right? Or Newcastle. What was it? Yeah, it was in Newcastle probably in, I want to say 2012. That sounds about right. It yeah, was so, something like that, right? We were a lot um, younger and <laughs> <laughs> I certainly had more hair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure we both had more hair then. <laughs> and, but, but so, so back then, what was the business? And then just, you know, kind of give us the evolution. And then I, I, I want to learn what are some of the keys to your success? Cause you've really, done some remarkable things over the years. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that, Ian. So yeah, just quick kind of synopsis. So I, I started a, a company called Remarketing in, in 2009. Um, it was opportunistic in the sense that um, I had a, an ex-client or actually an ex-employer who asked me to do their public relations and web management on the site. So I thought, hey, that's a good way to uh, earn an extra few pounds and that'll help my wife and I travel the world a few, a few years passed and, you know, it became a few more clients and a few more people. Um, and we always, so the first client we ever had was a pharmaceutical client. So my, my background was actually always in kind of just by chance was pharmaceutical life science, PR, uh, and, and kind of digital marketing. And so as you, as we've grown since then, uh, you know, adding more clients, adding more people in about 2014 or 2015, um, I think I, I read a Seth Golden book around that time, and there was a there was a uh, there was a line that he uses, which we use in our vision presentation about being meaningfully specific. And around that time, I also re- um, kind of analysed the business and realised that actually all our headaches and all our problems were coming from non non farmer and uh, non farmer and life science businesses. To use one of your phrases, we were trying to force the fit. We were trying to force the fit of skills across many different industries. And actually where we really fit was the kind of pharmaceutical biotech supply chain where we live. Um, and that, that was the, probably the, the kind of the moment or the pivot that accelerated our growth. Um, and so since that, we kind of grown 60, 50, 60% year on year. Yeah. Uh, we opened, we've had several bigger offices in our, in our headquarters in Newcastle. So uh, in the Northeast of England, we opened a second office in the UK and then, 18 months ago, we opened an office in Boston, or well, actually in Cambridge, where I'm sat right now in, in Massachusetts, uh, which is kind of the epicenter for kind of global drug development. It's kind of like the Silicon Valley for the drug sure. development sector. Um, and, and actually, the journey took me from earning some money to go traveling to actually uh, <laughs> inadvertently moving my entire family <laughs> to the US. Exactly. Uh, so from the Northeast uh, coast in the UK to the northeast coast of the US. So, uh, despite my beautiful British accent, I uh, I do live in in Boston yeah. now, and, and uh, yeah. So hopefully and, that and, gives and, you. and your wife's a physician, is that right? Yeah, she is. Um, and physician doesn't translate very well over here, over in the UK because physician's like a physiotherapist, okay. a physical therapist. So we've been getting used to. So she is. She's a she's a doctor in the UK. Um, okay. She's an anesthesiologist. Um, 
But she has managed to get a job over here, but not. She can't do the same thing, unfortunately. Yeah, because there's a whole bunch of licensing. Yeah, I, always, <laughs> I always joke with anesthesiologists. Anytime someone complains about the cost of anesthesiology and they say, man, I can't believe how much it costs for you to knock me out. The anesthesi- <laughs> good anesthesiologist says, no, no, it costs next to nothing to knock you out. It's waking you up that we charge for. <laughs> so, so, so you've, you've pretty much every, every two or three years, you've more than doubled the business. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a fair fair way of looking at it. I was reading an old um, ent- an award entry or something the other day and saying we'd quadrupled in size since 2011. Um, I don't know what ten times the size is in in those types of words, but I think we're probably ten times the size as we are we were probably six years ago. I think that's a yep. fair estimate, and and that, a lot of that's been driven by, as I say, being meaningfully specific, being very relevant and um to a specific audience you know 99.9 percent of the world we are just you know we're not relevant to and that's absolutely fine we just go after serving those that that are relevant but i think there's a huge lesson there which is so often people feel that look you got to cast a wide net you have to appeal to everybody and you haven't done that so what are some of the what are some of the steps that you've taken what are some of the approaches that you've taken that have proven very successful yeah so i mean it's, it's an interesting point you made there i think one of the things you go we'll back to your earlier question about misconception is in the early days we used to you know deal with companies that wanted to be everything to everyone and it's just so impossible unless you're google or facebook or one of these you know big titans it's very difficult uh to be kind of everything to everyone um so for us in terms of uh, you know being specific i think that the, the the techniques that we have used first and foremost is we've identified a market in the first place. So we've, before trying to carve out what we look like and what we sound like, we've made sure that there's a market there that requires serving in the first place. Um, I mean, what helps is the market that we, we aim at is a global market. It's a relatively, it's all B2B the kind of companies we work with. So most of our clients actually live in the supply chain of the pharmaceutical sector. Um, So typically they are research, manufacturing, analytical tech companies who are, have been born out of, they just do something really well. They're not marketing savvy necessarily. And they get to a point where, Hey, we need our website to look and sound professional. We need to raise our profile. We need to generate more leads we need help in converting business. We need help in inbound traffic. And those are typically the um, the kind of pain points that that we see from clients. Yeah. Those are the problems that you solve for them. Ex- exactly. So yeah. from a marketing standpoint, you're not saying, oh, and you need PR and digital and you're, you're marketing yourselves as if you're lacking A, B, or C, then yeah. we might be able to help. Absolutely. If, if you are... You know, it's almost like that elevator pitch. If you are this particular type of person or company and you are suffering from this particular type of thing, then we are, we can help with that. If yeah. it's anything else, you know, there's a million other agencies out there. Go and speak to them. Don't waste my time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what it means is my guess, and you tell me, my guess is that you don't spend a lot of time chasing opportunities that turn into nothing. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, um, I mean, it's funny because I, I think when I came on last time, I think our conversion rate was something like 80 to 90%. And it's not, it's it's probably still in the in the high 70s. When we actually go for work, we are, we almost 
we know in ourselves that we can solve these problems. So we don't get into a situation where, um, you know, we're kind of making it up on the spot. There, I mean, don't get me wrong. There might be situations where you'll say to the client, what you're asking us to do, we've not done this particular element before, but we're willing to call, you know, hold hands and go in together. And clients quite like that kind of collaborative approach. Um, it's funny cause you just mentioned that even, <laughs> even today, um, a client's reached out and it put us in touch with one of their um, sister companies in the U S and they contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said, Oh, have you done anything in this area? And I said, Oh, well, not really. I was like, we, we could have a go. I, I'm reasonably confident, but we have never done it before. And I, in my head, I was kind of saying no. <laughs> and actually they've come back saying, Hey, we want to kind of go ahead because we kind of trust that you'll work it out. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting that, that kind of restraint and honesty tends to get respect from people. Yeah. It's a novel concept because so many people are used to be fedding a line from somebody who really can't do the work. The, the fact that you take the time to say, okay, there are three things you want us to do. Two of them we're probably better at than anybody else. One of them, I don't know if we can help you. And the client thinks, well, I'm sure they can figure out the third one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly that. And we had a big presentation with a potential new client last week. And it was exactly that. There were seven criteria. In the final slide of the actual presentation, we said, hey, we nail. We had smiley faces for six and said, we, we absolutely nail them. And we had like a, a not so smiley face for the last one because we had to be honest and say, look, we've never done this particular element before. Yep. But if you're willing to kind of trust us we'll we'll go on that journey together um so fingers crossed they say yes <laughs> yeah well but the, but the thing is that it's it's all about building trust and for the client they look and say wow everyone else just told us yeah we're great at everything it's almost like i can solve all your problems by the way what are your problems right it's just it seems so disingenuous it's like it's like politics as Absolutely. opposed to, as opposed to, if you just are candid about where you can help and where you can't, it's funny. Every time someone approaches me for a keynote address, first question we ask is, "What are you trying to achieve?" So I can make sure that I can deliver what you want. Because oh, we saw you this one event. You know what? That was very specific. I want to make sure I understand what you need. Mm-hmm. Because if I can't help you, I want to tell you. And, and people ask me, "Well, what happens if they tell you something you can't do?" I say, "I tell them, yeah, I'm probably not the best person. Let me refer you to someone who is." Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, how hard is that? It's not that hard. But it, people get in this mode of scarcity, and they think, "Oh, well, I have to win every every piece of business that comes my way," and you don't. No, and I, and I have to say that you know, uh, I, I've learned that the hard way. You know, if I go back five years ago, we were going after everything. And, you know, any opportunity that came knocking or we were just kind of going after any, any type of work. And we just tried to be everything to everyone. And we just, it, it was unsustainable and ultimately it was unsuccessful to do that. Yep. Um, and when we niched down and focused on a particular sector and um, it's really interesting, the kind of consequences of that is it just gives you great clarity over who you, who you want to speak to, how you market yourselves, what events you go to, um, you know, you know, I'll, I'll get an inbound, actually it's a good way of putting at it. I'll be at an event and within about 20 seconds of speaking to someone, I'll be able to work out in my head one of the two personas that we target. So straight away from the language they use, probably from the demographic and everything, it tends to be very similar. Um, and it just, you, immediately I switch into a particular gear. I'm either really kind of heavy on the marketing jargon or I'm not, yeah. I'm more on the benefits side of things which a particular one of our buyers is more interested in yeah it is it is it is super interesting that once you get that level of clarity 
Um, and we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it does. It certainly helps in in making things a lot smoother. So, so here's my question for you. So you've done work in in the UK and throughout Europe, and now you've got an office in Cambridge. Yeah. How similar or different do you think things are in, in terms of the same side selling approach? Do you see a difference in how things are received in one place versus the other? That is that is such a good question. I'm actually in the middle of writing a blog about kind of uh, living in the US versus the UK and doing business. I have to say one of our, so some of the business that we've won in the US has been directly as a result of, you know, we're next to like for like um, companies and it's, it's our honesty and to say what we can and can't do, which is actually tips us in favor of the client. Um, and it's almost identical to what you said there that, that you tick two of the boxes because you said no to the third one. They're like, you know what? We, we actually trust you'll figure this out. And I don't know whether it's, it's relative to all us businesses or if it's just particular is service industry, but there's a tendency that I see is to overpromise in the yeah. US, which, and I don't know, and I don't want to say that's uh, general but i do see a hey we can do anything whatever you throw at us we can do anything and i don't know if it's that kind of britishness in us which is like well actually <laughs> we're going to be over overly polite here and say we can't do that um, but we we find it's quite refreshing um and quite uh it's well received in the u.s um yeah. which is which is interesting so so the so the concepts because you guys have pretty well adopted the concepts of same side selling throughout all of your yeah. business interactions in terms of how you approach sales and marketing is pretty much dead on with same side selling. And and it sounds like what you're saying is, look, the same concepts, whether we're in Europe or whether we're in the U S people pretty much respond similarly in both places. Yeah. And also beyond that as well. I mean, we have clients in Asia as well. And, and I have to say the, you know, the concept works globally right like we we have you know we have 60 clients or so from the west coast of the u.s to the asia pacific so um it seems to work really well we don't we don't change our our approach yes we we might we might change the nature of what we're delivering for the client or the ideas that we come up with but you know if we think they're a bad fit we walk away if we don't think we could do it we say no yeah we try and build a relationship early on and actually say to a almost you know it's you're kind of be on the same side of the table and almost how do we figure this out together because you've got knowledge of the business we've got skills actually if we combine those together um you know it's it's funny because one of the things i often say to clients is like i can't promise you we're going to fix your problems but i'm pretty sure that if we work together we'll be able to do it because of x y and z and it 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 seems to resonate with most people that irrespective of, of geography. Well, and I, I think so much of it comes down to the concept that we write about and speak about, which is the disarming notion so that you're not just there to sell something, whether they need it or not. You're, you're signaling all these little messages that say, look, we may or may not be able to help you. And if you're not going to work with us, we can't necessarily get there. There's a company I'm working with right now where just about every call I say, look, if you're not going to commit to these three things internally, it doesn't matter what I teach your team. Mm-hmm. If, if you can't do this part, it's just not going to work. So if you're comfortable that you can do these things, man, we should work together. If you're not, then we shouldn't until you're in a position where you can. Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. you're going to spend money and not get results. Absolutely. 
And and it's something that that people say, oh, well, well, it sounds like then you're dependent upon them. Yes, we are. And <laughs> and the sooner we all recognize that, the better off we are. Oh, absolutely. One thing I was gonna, I, I I'm actually curious to know, just because I've been pondering this. Um, do do you think that? So I I think I I don't see myself as a salesman. As in, I don't think I don't see myself as a business development person, despite the fact that I spent most of my time speaking to new prospects or, or existing clients. Yeah. But it, what I find, like, I, I I feel like I sell as a founder that knows the ins and outs of my business and knows our strengths. And I was just kind of curious to know: Do you ever come across kind of business development professionals that are able to? develop that skill of almost selling like a founder, which is, you know, your strengths and weaknesses inside out. And, um, I just, the more I, you know, one of the things we say to potential clients is, Hey, we don't have a, we don't have a sales team. You know, yeah. it's, it's us. Yeah. And, it, and it seems to resonate quite, quite well. So I just was interested to know whether you've seen any patterns or trends like that, where. Absolutely. In fact, we, we often tell people think like an owner. So as an owner of the company, what do you have to think about? You have to think about, is this client going to be satisfied? Are they going to be happy? Are we going to deliver great results for them? If not, it's going to be a major headache. So you know, as a founder of your business, that if you take on a client and you're not a good fit, it's going to suck you into the vortex of evil. It's going to be the bane of your existence. And you're going to wish you never had that client. Sometimes people in sales or business development think, well, any sale is a good thing. In fact, I often recommend to people that if you have salespeople, you tie their compensation to customer satisfaction. So you say, look, you can make 75% of your money based on the sale, but 25% comes from whether or not the client is satisfied. And if they're not satisfied, you lose that last 25%. And people say, oh man, how do you do that? It's like, well, because now they don't want to sell the deal where the client's not going to be happy because it's actually going to drag them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a good, that's a good way of doing it. Now, now, one of the things you've also done, I know, is that in moving to the U.S., you know how to bring on a managing director to run your business in Newcastle. So mm-hmm. tell us about that. Yeah, that was a, a interesting process and, and felt very risky at the time. But we kind of, we knew it was the right decision to make that I was the one who was best qualified to come and grow the operations in the U.S. And uh yeah, it's a difficult thing, kind of handing over the keys to, you know, I don't know what the what the analogy is, because it's more than just your car. It's like, it's more than just your house. It's, dare I say, it's like one of your children. You know? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's you like your up? family here. Can I'm going to be heading out. Take care of the family. Yeah, it's um, it's an incredibly daunting thing. I mean, we, we went through a kind of a rigorous process, a really uh, rigorous process. And actually, the... I actually met Emma who who took over the running of the business on a, on a trade mission to the U S actually. And just, we got on very well. And when we looked at her track record and what she was doing, we felt she had the skills. Um, But the the most important thing for me was actual, uh, the the cultural fit. I mean, don't get me wrong. She she had to be able to demonstrate she'd run a business and, you know, have the experience and the industry knowledge, but actually culture fit was the most important, most important thing for us. Um, Sure. And, you know, it's where seven, well, eight, nine months in and so far so good. Uh, she's done a terrific job. And, and it's it's funny because she's taken over all the stuff that I hate doing, right? So it's great, <laughs> op- op- operations, contracts, people management, oh, uh. you know, like it, it, all the stuff that kind of I you put, you know, I put to the bottom of the list and it kind of frees 
me up to do the things that I enjoy doing, but also the things that I'm good at doing, which are sure. few, which are few and far between. But it um, it does kind of direct, it kind of automatically directs you into being conscious of where you spend your time. So, yep. and, and you you stay so disciplined and very intentional about your approach to growth. So, what kind of results are you seeing this year? Yeah. So, uh, I mean. I, I, if all goes well this year, I think we'll probably grow another seventy percent or so. Yeah, <laughs> so, which is bringing crazy levels of problems. Yeah, you um, know what? It, it introduces new challenges, new opportunities. But um, I don't think anybody listening is thinking, "Oh, poor guy, he's grown no, his no. business seventy percent." No, no, I, and I, and I, you know, and I suppose those people listening, what is interesting is, is when you start scaling up, you you see a different financial model to your business when you're investing so for example we've invested in the u.s operations we've a bigger office in newcastle and a second office in manchester we've added more staff before we've had the work we've got five staff in the u.s now so what's really interesting is the the top line figure goes up but the bottom line figure doesn't move as quick and actually yeah. slows down and that's that's a really difficult thing to, for me to or for any founder i suspect to kind of like to deal with is because you're kind of used to them going up in pairs. And um, so that's, that's been a a real learning for me. Well, you know what? And and I I remember in running my prior businesses and with many of my clients, when we model things out, you can look and say, look, when you grow from X to Y, there's an area in the middle where you're actually going to be making less profit, even though your numbers are higher because you need more infrastructure. And eventually when you get to Y it's way more profitable than it was at X, <laughs> but along the way there are periods where you're almost a break even business. Yeah. And it's funny because that's exactly what my, uh, my financial director says exactly what you said. He's like, it's all right when we come out the other end. I'm like, when the hell are we going to come out the other yeah. end? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's and that's that's part of the fun of it. So so in this in this process where now you're growing, you're growing seventy percent. Have you just decided now? Now we're going to chase any and all business, or are you maintaining that that strict focus? Oh, and yeah, strict focus all the way. I mean, it's it's a you know it's a really interesting situation where we are we're lining work up for twenty twenty now. It's it's a real it's a really interesting selling point actually where we're having conversations with clients and saying, Hey, we can't start till February, March next year. Um, And we've never been, I think in this situation, other than we've got to be careful not to over promise. And um, and ultimately that's where your reputation comes unstuck where you kind of say, yeah, yeah, we can do this, this, and this. But so we're, we're in situations now where the, the types of conversations we're having are look guys, we can't stop till, quarter one 2020 because of x y and z and again it's you know i, I kind of liken it to you know it's, it's a few years inside of it's probably been to a nightclub but you know when you were 18 19 going to a nightclub and uh or 21 in the u.s and there, there was a there's a line outside the door right and it doesn't matter how bad it was inside the perception was hey that's the place to be yeah. and it's 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 kind of like a, a perverse version of that which is kind of saying hey we've got a line of people that want to work with us because we're really good at what we do and you know people like working with us but you know you've got to take the call whether you're willing to wait three months or not and uh it's a very very fortunate don't i mean don't get me wrong i mean it's a super fortunate situation to be in um but we've worked hard for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I often joke in my business where someone will say, well, gee, we thought about bringing you in, but it's so much more expensive. We found someone who will be, who's like 30% of what you charge. 
And I, and I always say, well, why do you think that is? And then they instantly <laughs> realize, oh. <laughs> you, get, you get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and you know what? It isn't always the case. And you might get somebody who is going to be really good down the road. I, I look at it as there, there are certain clients of mine I've worked with year after year. And anytime they get pushed back internally, they say, no, no, this is the guy that helped our business double and then double again and then double again. We're not looking to save a few bucks up front and get somebody who might make it go in reverse. Do you have you ever have you ever had to deal with uh, with procurement people as part of your process? Because I mean that must be awful for them yeah, when they so, get you so, on the so, other side. So I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you a quick procurement story that I think people might find entertaining. So I was working with there was, there was a government contracting organization. I don't do a lot in the government space. There was a government contracting organization where the CEO had seen me speak. So he says, okay, this is great. Yeah, get us a contract. We get him the contract. And then their procurement people contacted me and said, well, we see this price, but we need to know that we're getting the best price. And I said, well, how would you know? Well, we have to get three bids. I said, well, you can't get three bids. Well, then what we need to get is three. Can you send us three invoices from other companies? And that way we know that, that we're getting the right price. And I said, okay, well, then how will you know it's the right price? Well, because we just know that we're going to be paying the lower of the three. And I said, okay, so I'm going to send you three invoices. And our agreement is that you're going to pay the lowest of the three. And they said, that's right. And I sent them three. And the lowest one was like $2,000 more than what I had told them. Cause it was a, it was a local event. And they came back and said, okay, okay. You made your point. So, so we have the, so let's go back to the original quote. I said, no, no, you and I had an agreement. This is how you would know. And that's what it is. <laughs> and, and so, the, and so the, the, they, 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 um, they contact the CEO. The CEO calls me up laughing hysterically. <laughs> he says, he said, listen, I don't care. We'll pay the extra two grand as long as you tell my team that story. <laughs> so like, because, he said, because we're often the only game in town for some of these things. And our team always getting beat up by, by the procurement people. And um, so it was, for me, it was, for me, it became a sport where I just, all right, listen, if you want to play that game, that's fine. But I'm just, I'm giving you, this is the fair price for me locally, but okay, I'll give you three bids from overseas and good luck. (laughs) I love it. It must be that nightmare to get you on the other side of the phone. Well, you know what? It's, uh, I'm sure there's times where, uh, where they're more skilled than I am, but I'm sure. um, but it's it's probably rare that they're dealing with somebody who actually teaches other people how to negotiate value. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it could be a decided advantage. So, hey, Ramon, what's what's the what's the best way for people to reach out to learn more about what you're doing and to follow your journey? So, um, I mean, the, the the website of our business is Remarketing, which is R A Marketing. Uh, pr.com and then you can find me on linkedin as roman segal r-a-m-a-n-s-e-h-g-a-l i now have roman segal forward slash uk and forward slash us which is yeah. um so yeah and i'm on on twitter as well if anyone uh is that bothered about twitter which i don't really use very much yeah, you know what? i use twitter now just to rant about stuff yeah. but i spend a lot more time on linkedin yeah, likewise, it's a bit of a necessary evil given probably what we both do for a living as opposed to actually a, an enjoyment factor. Exactly. But no, no, it's obviously I'm always, uh, you know, I, I, I use this opportunity to say thanks to you as well because I uh, I think your book has played a, a, you know, a pivotal role in how we've developed as a business and is fundamental to the way that we uh, interact with people from a business development perspective. And 
is it, it's it's kind of um, innate in the way that we we behave and actually ultimately win business and convert and treat clients and that type of thing. So I'm very grateful for that. And uh, yeah, kind of hope to see you do more speaking gigs and podcasts and continuing all the success that you, you've had. It's very well deserved. Yeah, it's very ni- and very nice of you to say. And as I always point out, there are people who sit in audiences and listen to the things I talk about and do nothing with it. And then there are people like you who take this stuff to heart and actually implement it. So I don't really get to take that much credit for it because it's the, it's the leaders like you who actually apply these concepts and make a difference because just because people read the book doesn't mean they're actually going to do something with it. Well, exactly. I was going to, um, I, I was trying to work out when, uh, I think, I still think from the first time I ever saw you, I've got my, uh, I actually have my notes and it's from, I, so I, I use Evernote for everything Ian, so I can go back and look at every single note. And actually it was on the 16th of May, 2014 and I've ah. got and I have my notes from uh from from that session that I I saw you speak what, what did they say what oh and I want to know what the notes said any any key points here uh, yeah no so my my notes are very very well structured for once and uh you know so I have general thoughts um you know think like a buyer work with the buyer to solve the problem rather than to sell to them um it's got the elevator rant um rather than the elevator pitch. It's got enticed to solve and discover. Sure. You're like this. What is your market's gluten-free? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 11th hour objections, procurement, get involved in price. And uh, that's a really funny one because I always remember reading your book going, I'm never going to have to deal with procurement, procurement companies because the companies that we, we work with are just too small. And then, you know, our biggest clients are, you know, multi-billion dollar <laughs> companies now. And we, uh, we had a really interesting one recently where there was a new procurement guy rang who kind of it started and he rang my team and said, Hey, I noticed that we're paying more for you guys than we would a typical agency in the sector. And we were like, well, actually you're, you're getting a bit of a discounted rate already, but and he's like, I'm going to need you to reduce your buy, price by 20% or something like that. And I was like, well, that's fine. How about we just, we'll just walk away then and we'll wish you all the best. And then he obviously went and had the conversation with the team and be like, Whoa, what are you doing? (laughs) This guy's trying to make a name for himself. And, uh, but we were prepared to walk away and kind of think, well, we know, we know who else you've spoken to in the past and how, how well you think of us. So I'm willing to kind of, uh, you know, I'm willing to go bluff you on this one. So, but it was, it's interesting because when I, when I first spoke to you and read your book, I didn't realize uh, the procurement side of things. So it's another learning that I've been able to benefit from. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and ideas. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just love the fact that I'm always learning more stuff from you. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks Ian and all the best. And, uh, yeah, take care. You bet. There's so much great information that Ramon shared. Let me give you a quick 30 second recap of the key information you can use and apply to your business right away. First, I love the fact that Ramon has grown tenfold since the time he's embarked on same-side selling. And remember, all PR is not good PR. Sometimes you're in a crisis mode. I love how he says that the founder doesn't have to do it all. In fact, in order to grow, many times you have to recognize that you need other people to do the things that maybe you're not best at. And then know the problems and the value that you deliver for your clients. Remember, this show gets a direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you think I should have on the show or a guest, just drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. 
Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, especially your customers.